Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Mark Rothko with Museum of Fine Arts Houston curator Allison DeLima Green. She's coordinated the MFA's presentation of Mark Rothko, a retrospective. The exhibition, a survey of Rothko's career largely drawn from the collection of the National Gallery of Art, opens to the general public on September 20th and remains on view through January 24th, 2016. The MFAH is the final stop for the exhibition, which has already been to The Hague and to Seoul. With over a thousand works, the National Gallery has the world's finest Rothko collection. Delima Green is also the editor of the exhibition catalog, Mark Rothko, an Essential Reader, which includes both new essays and key texts on Rothko written by critics and other contemporaries. On the second segment, an excerpt from our February conversation with Melvin Edwards. The retrospective of his work that the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas organized earlier this year is now at the Zimmerly Art Museum at Rutgers University. It'll be on view there through January 10th, 2016. But first, Allison DeLima Green, after the break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents San Diego Collects, on view at its La Jolla location from September 26th through January 10th. Featuring a selection of works from private collections around San Diego, this exhibition aims to recognize that the cultural resources of our city are thriving not only within the walls of our museums, but also through the efforts of many committed individuals. With a glimpse into private collections, San Diego Collects showcases the diversity of art our region has to offer. Works by both established and emerging, as well as international and local artists, attest to the fullness of our community's collecting spirit. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. Experience tomorrow's art history today, for free, and in a beautiful, intimate setting at Blaffer Art Museum. On view this fall, Did You Know We Taught Them How to Dance? The first solo museum exhibition for British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa and a test of art's capacity to envision new concepts of environmentalism. Also on view, Time Image, an international group survey of temporal concerns in contemporary art. More at blafferartmuseum.org. And we're back. Allison DeLima Green, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to join you today. I liked where you started your catalog essay, so let, let's start there. It's it's 1954, just four or five years after Mark Rothko begins to paint the kind of mature period color clouds for which he would become most famous. And the Art Institute of Chicago is putting up a show of Rothko's then recent paintings. And Catherine Q wrote an essay about Rothko. How much did what she wrote in that essay impact the way we still think about Rothko's work today? I think there's an enormous sort of gap that we all fill in our imaginations with Rothko's voice because in 1954, Catherine Q invited Rothko to do a conversation that was going to be reproduced in the catalog as the main catalog essay. And after their beginnings, Rothko sat down, tried to tackle what he wanted to do in words, what he had done in painting. And after a few weeks, apparently he telephoned Q up and said, I can't do it. I want the paintings to speak for themselves. And this man who had been incredibly eloquent in writing about his art and at times the art of his contemporaries when he was up and coming as an artist in the 1940s suddenly entered into an almost unbroken silence about his own work when it came to being published. That said, I think when you read a lot of the critical writings of his contemporaries, particularly people who are close to him, like Dory Ashton, you can hear Rothko's voice come through because we do know he was very, very talkative in the studio, argumentative, sometimes contradictory, and always eager to find new ways of deepening what could be found in pure abstract painting. Q writes that, quote, To enjoy Rothko's paintings seems less a thinking than a feeling process, but his work is more concerned with general emotional sensations than with specific emotions. He introduces no symbolism. He avoids a traditional center of interest, stressing always flux and flow of light and color. One tends to enter into his canvases, not merely look at them, which is kind of where, I mean, you could read that in in, 
a review of a major Rothko show probably next week. And I hope people will come um, through our doors for that very experiential contact. I think we're very used to that kind of way of thinking about painting or art in general, thanks to Rothko. In Houston, of course, we have the Rothko Chapel that we've been able to visit and revisit continually since 1971. But the idea of combining looking and experience, I think, was one of those crucible turning points in Rothko's own career and in the thinking about American art in general in the mid 1970s. 50s to 60s. And then you see artists like James Terrell pick up on those ideas of the sort of experiential and expand upon them in subsequent years. It's something that Rothko and Still must have discussed in San Francisco in the mid-1940s because it's about, you know, it's more or less after those two periods that Rothko spends in San Francisco that the work begins to, to change. Absolutely. And the influence of Still on Rothko, I believe, is undervalued. And of course, the restrictions that apply now to exhibiting Still's work and, you know, the limits that Still placed on his legacy has somewhat clouded our ability to see the two together. And the fact that, of course, the two of them did after a great friendship lost that friendship and you know we're no longer on speaking terms that's putting it gently <laughs> i think sometimes you have to be great friends to be great enemies but well still could be a great enemy with anybody <laughs> yes, <but. laughs> absolutely to, you know thank god for the clifford still museum now in denver because now we can really look at his work and really study it in depth and i think they're doing a great, great job there. And I think in time, we'll understand more and more about the unusual dynamic between Still and Rothko. Still and Rothko are in close contact in San Francisco in 46 and 47. In fact, Rothko gets his job at the California School of the Fine Arts as a result of Still's influence. The years during which Rothko is painting these kind of biomorphic post-surrealist paintings at 45 and 46, and he begins to work out of them in 47. Several of these biomorphic paintings are in the show, about half a dozen. That moment of transition away from the biomorphic I don't know, style isn't quite the right word, but it's close. How much of that move away from biomorphism and into what would become the next thing, which would become known as the multiforms, has to do with still, and, and, and what does it have to do with other things? I think we're always going to be guessing a little bit about how these transitions work. And certainly the fact that something gets labeled biomorphic and something else gets labeled multiform underscores why Rothko himself hated labels. But we have in the exhibition two paintings hanging side by side, one from 1946, which is generally considered one of the last of the biomorphic paintings. It's catalog number 13, and it's titled Aquatic Drama, and it's this rich terracotta colored painting in the center it almost looks like there's a pair of lungs or body forms beautifully outlined there's a great calligraphy across the canvas and it's the kind of painting that we can also tie to people like de Kooning or Shel Gorky um, that sort of sense of line as calligraph across the canvas surface I think is very much evident in Rothko's sort of last engagement with surrealism and his last overt reference to subject matter. A year later he's now working in 1947 in a looser style for the so-called multiforms and like Clifford Still He's abandoned titles. He's now just numbering his canvases or simply leaving them purely untitled. And at the same time, he's pulled out almost all line, or at least line as a defining form. And the multiforms are this pure brushwork, a lighter palette, earth colors that find many of Rothko's surrealist biomorphic works are now giving away to a lighter hue, more lavenders, more grays. And I think with these canvases, you're beginning to see what becomes what's so celebrated in Rothko's work, that sense of imbued light. That there's, as another San Francisco-based artist, writer described Rothko's work, Hugh Crean, Rothko's works become a wall of light. 
And with these works, you begin to see it. And I don't think it comes out of it necessarily an experience of landscape in the traditional sense, but certainly as Clifford still was rethinking what the landscape of modern painting could be. I do think he was looking at the Western landscape. Rothko, who himself grew up on the West Coast of America, although, of course, born in Latvia, I don't want to say these are the abstract, sublime landscapes that Robert Rosenblum identified in Rothko, but there is something changing here. And I think influence is perhaps too strong a word, but certainly I would say the older artist perhaps was inspired by Clifford Still's example. As you say that, the other artist who it occurs to me is removing line from his painting at about this time, and who was also in San Francisco, was Philip Guston. Absolutely. And Guston, I think, is someone who's very much summoned up in one or two of the other multiforms. Or actually, I would say that in reverse. I think Guston was looking at the multiforms and getting permission from them as well. Yeah, because those paintings of Guston's come along in the early 1950s. So when Rothko is making these multiforms, you talked about about the absence of line. Is he erasing it with the brush and in, in, in how he uses the brush on the canvas, or is he excavating from the canvas and actively kind of removing, dissolving paint from where maybe a line might have been? I think some of that's going to be guesswork. Rothko was very, very reserved, I think would be the right word, about what his studio practice is. Harry Cooper writes beautifully about these work in Rothko's Soup, an essay that is reproduced in our catalog. Cooper is the uh, head of the Modern and Contemporary Department at the National Gallery of Art. Yes, and a very important partner in this exhibition. And Harry started looking closely at the multiforms when he was a curator at the Fog up in Harvard University, and he noticed that one of the paintings in the Fog's collection must have been rotated while the artist was working on it. He looked carefully at the drip patterns and realized that this was a painting that had more than one orientation, while in the studio at least, if not once released into the public eye. And we're always going to sort of be testing our own eye against Rothko's practice. But there is that kind of wonderful excavation. He was working, by and large, with very, very thin paints. And according to Christopher Rothko, the artist's son, he loved to collect different kinds of turpentines and thinners and trying to find the sort of perfect transparent pigment with which to layer his compositions. And we see that happening more and more as I think he begins to erase the line in the multiforms, as you might say, and then he no longer is in need of it. So the multiforms are paintings that Rothko is making in 46, 47, 48. And as we get near the end of 48, there's kind of a a sense of nearing what we now consider those, those mature Rothkos. And, and Harry Cooper, in his essay, says that one particular work, which is maybe not so helpfully titled number 10, 1948, it's catalog number 19, Cooper writes that that work, quote, seems to stand sentinel at Rothko's breakthrough. Agree? Disagree? Absolutely agree. And it's a very strange picture. It's a very strange picture. We'll, of course, have an image of it up on manpodcast.com, but it's almost ghostly. And it is certainly, as Harry also points out, a ghost of a figure. We see a head, we see a torso, the suggestion of arms. And at the same time, we're seeing the tiered rectangles that begin to predict the sort of classic tiers that we consider Rothko's stacked compositions. And so when we're looking at this and with its very strong vertical thrust, It makes me think of, you know, how we talk about whether something is figure or landscape. And with this figure embodied in this composition, it makes me think how much there are still figurative implications in the last of the transitional paintings. I'm I'm reminded of Timothy Anglin Burgard's recent Diebenkorn in Berkeley exhibition in which he found 
lots of figures, mostly reclining nudes, in, in Diebenkorns that scholars have for, for several decades ascribed entirely to Berkeley Hills down toward the Golden Gate interpretations of landscape. And Burgard's case was wholly convincing. And and it's impossible to look at, at number 10 and, and not see a figure. How, as we move into 1949, which everybody's agreed for some time now is the pivotal Rothko year, do we see evidence, any more evidence of figure or does Rothko banish it? I have a pet theory and at the risk of sounding like an elk from the Monty Python skits, I am still seeing the figure in catalogs number 24 and 25, one from the National Gallery, one from the Minnell Collection, numbers 8 and numbers 21, where particularly if you look at number 21, and I invite you to look at that and think about Brancusi's Kiss, and think about how two very square forms meet one another in an embrace in Brancusi. Oh, that's interesting. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I think this was... The entire lower half of the painting. Yeah, we'll have an image of this up too. Yes, and and I think there's even, if I may say so, a phallic thrust in number eight on the left margin of the painting. And I think this is a risky territory. I don't want to say, yes, Mark Rothko was happily married to his second wife, Mel, from 1945 on. And we should read these as figures as an embrace or impose an artificial biography on these works. But I do think this comes out of human experience. And often people talk about the humanism of Rothko, um, the tragic, the timeless. But I think there's also although he avoided these terms, there's the rapturous and the joyous as well. And I think the transitional paintings, not to say that every day of his life was a rapturous and joyous one. He did fight depression in the 1940s, as he did in later years. But I do think there is something about the idea of an embrace that is embedded in these works that then turns around from being the subject of the painting to the gestalt, if you will, of the painting, because suddenly it's no longer an image of forms embracing one another, but the painting embraces the viewer. And that is what happens with the classic Rothko's. No longer do you see yourself looking at an image of an embrace, but you are embraced by the work itself. You you mentioned a phallic shape in one of the 1949 paintings. I, I think they're there in 47 and 48 too. The, the 1947 kind of purplish multiform painting we were talking about earlier. I know this is difficult for people to follow in audio, but we'll have the images on the website and, and, and I think it'll jump out. And also in, in an untitled 1948 painting that is probably one of the paintings that, that Gustin found most useful. In fact, it, it shares a lot of palette with those foggy abstract Gustins of the early 1950s, but there's a phallic shape in, in, a, in a very different color, a dark purple, at the top of that painting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, in Rothko had read Freud. This was, um, he had been in analysis himself. He was a very knowing man, but I think he would not want to limit any discussion or cut it off. We were talking about the 48 paintings as kind of emphasizing erasure of line. Is there something that separates the 49 paintings from the year before that's just that dramatic or stark? I think, you know, people often call them stacked compositions, which is actually a term that I have trouble with. I know other people have because stacking create, you know, suggests a kind of geometry that is locked. But certainly, tiered is a better term, perhaps. You know, you begin to get this sort of classical measure to the work. And there's not so much the push-pull of the colors and forms and the multiforms. And we are, and there's a funny thing that happens. When you reproduce these multiform paintings, they look pretty much alike. When you hang them in the, you know, number 15 and number 18 
which are in a two-page spread in our catalog, look fairly comfortable when you reproduce them side by side, and you can certainly see the formal affinities between the two. You, if you hung these two paintings side by side, you'd shoot the curator. The surfaces are incredibly different. Even though they're pretty much the same size, the impact and visual difference is huge. And one, uh, the nine, number 15, it's not that it's that much more thickly painted, but it's not painted with a kind of transparency that you see in number 18. And suddenly, I think with number 18, with the Sentinel painting that Harry Cooper references, you begin to get Rothko's, I don't want to say it's signature style, because it's not just a motif, but his absolute command of how to layer color to get the effects he wants, he, he's achieved it. He's figured out, he's cracked the code, and the paintings assume an authority that, even if they're intimate in scale, immediately arrest your attention. By the time we get to the paintings that we think Rothko made at the end of 49, and the chronology here is a little indistinct, I don't mean in your show, the, the, the Rothko chronology that, that you know is unknown. By the time we get to the end of 49, Rothko is making really, really big paintings. And, and in, in 48 and in 47, he's getting there, but not, not the square inchage or the square footage he gets to at the end of 49. Is that important? And if so, why? I think it gets, again, back to that sort of idea of the embrace of the viewer, that that it that it's becomes this wall. And of course, we know from installation views, by this point, he's absolutely testing the limits of Betty Parsons' gallery. And, you know, paintings that go from the floorboard to the ceiling valance, and that may be what dictated finally the limits, the vertical limits of some of these works. But I think also there was increased confidence. He began to get real recognition outside. He had his first deep essay written on him by Douglas McKaggy, another West Coast figure at the time, although McKaggy came back east not long afterwards. You had Thomas Hess writing encouragingly about his work. Um, it was the breakthrough period. And there were certainly rivalries and engagements with his contemporaries. Jackson Pollock, you know, who was not a close friend of Rothko's, but he had broken the ice. He was working at a larger scale. De Kooning was working. So is Still. Yeah, exactly. Still, in particular, Newman, who was part of that circle, was really coming out of his shell and painting his first really authoritative large works. And so... It was a co combination of perhaps bravado and confidence that all of these artists shared, that they could push to this larger limit. As we get into the 1950s, kind of the, the paintings Rothko makes in the 1950s, the famous iconic color clouds, art historians have, and, and, and in this show as well, kind of blocked off, you know, 50 to 58 or 59 as... as as kind of that peak decade. Did Rothko himself think of his having passed through a certain crucible at the end of 49 into these these hovering, not panels, but near panels of color? I think he must have been very self-aware of them. And he did talk at one, this is 1951, and the full quote is on page 165 of my catalog. And he states on a co conference on architecture, painting, and sculpture hosted by the Museum of Modern Art about why he wanted to paint large pictures. I realize historically the function of painting large pictures is something very grandiose and pompous. The reason I paint them, however, I think it applies to other painters I know, is precisely because I want to be intimate and human. And I think he points out things like this to distinguish himself from the muralism of the pre-war era, the WPA muralists and the large-scale painting up to that time had been about a certain kind of content statement. And Rothko was very clear 
that he wanted to work ambitiously, but humanly. And I think he knows that he's achieved that by 1951. A little bit earlier, you mentioned an essay that Robert Rosenblum wrote in which he frames Rothko as kind of a Northern European, as, as descended from a certain Northern European sublime, shall we say. It's an, it's an essay that Rosenblum writes uh, in 60. It's published in 61. And it comes, of course, after this, this decade we, we, we've been discussing. Does Rosenblum's interpretation stick for you? And if, if, if so or if not, why not? Even Rosenblum said he wasn't sure if it stuck for himself. At the very end of his life, in one of his anthologies, he footnoted, I'm not sure I was right. I may have been too adamant. But I still think it's an incredibly important essay. And again, it frames Rothko along with the work of Clifford Still. And actually, the essay opens with the discussion of Still before it gets to Rothko and also Newman. But it was right at that moment, if not right always, if you like. I think when Diane Waldman ended her first great, great retrospective and the catalog essay for that, for the Guggenheim in 1979, sort of reiterating the Rosenblum argument of this sort of Caspar David Friedrichian aspect of the last paintings, that locked people into too narrow a way of thinking about Rothko. And I think what was so exciting when Rosenblum first proposed this was Bob knew he was writing about Rothko right before there was going to be a major Rothko retrospective. At the Museum of Modern Art. Exactly. An incredibly important breakthrough and recognition for a contemporary artist. Nothing like that now, I think, could be as important in any single museum. But it was, again, a sort of game changer at the time. And you had Peter Sells writing about Rothko for that catalog. Yeah, in fact, Sells, Sells, a Californian, organized the show. And, you know, I think Rosenblum was a fabulously brilliant young art historian, and he wanted to sort of reintegrate Rothko into the history of art in a very different way than anyone had attempted to up to that time. Greenberg and other writers had looked at certain historical affinities to Rothko, but Rosenblum, I think, had a fresh take that was controversial. It mixed things up. And of course, we don't know what Rothko's response was. He didn't write a letter to the editor rejecting Rosenblum's theory, but I think he probably would have disagreed with many aspects of it. He didn't want, I don't think he was interested in American Hudson River School painting, but that's all right. Sometimes you can make the wrong analogy and still open up a conversation about a work of art that is rewarding. And that's what I think Rosenblum's achievement was and why we still value that essay. 61 is a wild year for, for, for Rothko. Not only is that the year of this essay by Rosenblum and the year of the MoMA show, it's the year that he and Clifford still have their their final falling out and never never ne- never speak again. And, and, and over, over the next nine years, still becomes increasingly nasty toward Rothko, a, a period ending in, in Still's horrific and infamous phone call to Gordon Smith at, at the ball. At, at the Albright in, in Buffalo after after Rothko's death. Well, I think actually, you know, by 1961, you know, there are arguments between Still and Rothko and all that, but I don't think that's important in the work. I think it's important in their lives. You may disagree with me, but I think Rothko, by this point in his own career, has become you know, very self-focused. There are things he's doing in his paintings, whether or not they are realized at the time, like the Seagram's murals, which of course were never installed in the Seagram's building or in the Four Seasons restaurant, but were very, very different from what other people were doing at that time. Perhaps closest to certain things that Franz Klein was experimenting with. And, of course, Elaine de Kooning writes about Franz Klein and Rothko for Art News. And, of course, and immediately Rothko writes, I am not an action painter. But he doesn't necessarily say 
anything against Franz Klein, which I think is interesting. And I look at the large untitled Seagram mural sketch that we have, the double wide, if you will, catalog number 45, which is in our exhibition. And I can't look at that without sort of thinking how exciting it is that Houston's able to hang Klein's Wotan two galleries away and that you'll be able to look at that as well as a beautiful Clifford still in our collection and think about possible other conversations that are happening in artists' minds and studios that are not necessarily directly, you know, something that is investigated as much as it might be. Um, and so I think something is happening in Rothko, and certainly as the 60s go on, and this is something Christopher Rothko writes about very beautifully um, in the essay we print here, is about this kind of, you know, dive into the absolute, the taking color out of the composition, the floating clouds that so enchanted collectors from the Demo Mills and the Bronfmans on to these very difficult paintings that he creates for Houston for what becomes the Rothko Chapel. Yeah, so this is this is from roughly 1958 until the end, end of Rothko's life in 1970. He, he goes from using multiple colors in a single work to using multiple shades, but not multiple colors necessarily in single works, and then to these almost uh, color-absent works that end up in, in, in Houston at the chapel and, and others in the collection of the National Gallery, in fact, that they exhibited in 2010. As, as, as you've prepared for this show, have you come up with any ideas on why Rothko begins limiting his palette in 58, 59? I think, you know, he really wanted to be important and in the biggest way possible. And I think he was one of the last of the great philosopher painters uh, artists who believed that painting could be a vessel for belief. And I'm not saying, saying religious painting, but belief and as a witness of his time. And I think he felt that people misunderstood the harmonic colors he was using earlier, and he did not want to be labeled a decorative artist. And he wanted to be understood as a figure who you know, was almost rabbinical in his absolute, you know, discipline in both word and deed um, when it came to the studio practice. And I think, you know, he set himself the ultimate challenge of how to make these, you know, monochromes that could be timeless. And, you know, he was, you know, ecstatic by the invitation of the Demonels, you know, and, you know, partly through his response and the evolution of the own Demonels, thinking about what the commission could be, the separation of the Rothko Chapel from the University of St. Thomas. Uh, so it stopped being a Catholic chapel and became an ecumenical site. I think is one of the most interesting stories that can be told about how Rothko's own generous vision shaped the generosity of the chapel even though the paintings themselves on their first encounter may seem obdurate and certainly, I'll be the first to admit, very difficult to reproduce. They absolutely demand that you stand before them. And light sensitive as well. You know, the, in, in, these late works kind of from, I don't know, mid-60s on, maybe maybe even a little earlier, are... are typically talked about because the palette goes away and the colors darken. And one thing I think that is less considered, or at least less written about in, in these late works, is that the edges harden. The not not doesn't happen in every painting, but with an increasing number of paintings, you don't have soft edges between tones or colors. And soft edges, as you get near the edge of the canvas, the paintings stiffen up. Any any thoughts on why or or guesses as to what Rothko is approaching that? I think, you know, well, he goes back and forth because then, of course, in 69, he sort of mixes it all up again with the acrylic paintings, both on paper and on canvas. I think, you know, he is very aware of people like Ad Reinhardt, 
He was very close to Reinhardt's widow at the end of his life. And I think, you know, there were certain things he was very much against in painting. One of the reasons he left Sidney Janice Gallery was Janice's exhibitions of pop art. And I think, you know, there were certain sort of stances Rothko took. And I think just as he was eliminating easy color, he was also eliminating that sort of, you know, that brushed margin. How cool could he take it, in other words, and still be powerful? And when you stand in front of these paintings, I assure you, you have no doubt that he has succeeded in his goals. I think the 1969 paintings, with their very reduced palettes, but a new kind of brushwork, may be the discovery for most Houstonians. And certainly people who tend to think that Rothko's career ended with the Rothko Chapel. That's a tricky thing. The Rothko Chapel opened to the public in 1971, a year after Rothko's death. And so there's a tendency to mix it up in our heads that the Rothko Chapel is Rothko's ultimate statement. But when you look at the paintings of 1969 and the brushwork and the new treatment of margins, that he let a white margin remain around the edge of the painting, first by necessity because he was taping paper and later clearly by choice. These paintings were so hard for people to understand when they were first viewed. And I think installations at the National Gallery and the inclusion we have in this show hopefully allows us to realize the generosity of Rothko's work to the very end. I look at these works and think, how many doors he opened for younger artists, whether someone like Bryce Martin or Gerhard Richter, both of whom have paid tribute to Rothko, or younger artists who I hope will come to this show and take renewed inspiration from Rothko's example. It's been such a privilege to work with these paintings. Those white borders must have been really striking in the context of the mid to late 60s, I mean, you would never see a white border around the edge of a still or a pollock. And that, I think, is really important. And people argued over what those white borders meant. Was it some kind of retraction? You know, before that, Rothko had painted around the border of his paintings. Often, when you look at them, you know, the color is on the side as well as on the face. And so this retraction away from the edge alarmed people, actually. It was the last great debate, perhaps, about painting. And yet by pulling the painting within the border makes a whole nother edge active for Rothko. And I think there was a promise of more things to come, which makes me very sad that Rothko's end came when it did. He was plagued by terrible health and... I think we didn't realize in the 60s as much as we do now how much bad health contributes to depression. And But I don't want people to come away from the show thinking about Rothko's death. I want people to come away thinking about his incredibly generous legacy. Alison DeLima Green, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for giving us this platform. The Getty's new exhibition, Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World, on view through November 1st, brings together 50 of the most important bronzes from antiquity, from sculptures known since the Renaissance to spectacular recent discoveries from the depths of the sea. These innovative, realistic bronze works of physical power and emotional intensity have been dubbed a can't-miss by the LA Times. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, an excerpt from my February conversation with Melvin Edwards. We spoke when the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas 
opened a retrospective of his work. That show is now at the Zimmerly Art Museum at New Jersey's Rutgers University. It'll be on view through January 10th, 2016. The exhibition at the Nasher, the retrospective, starts pretty much in 1963 with one of your Lynch fragments. An amazing body of work. How and when did you come up with the phrase Lynch fragment? The phrase probably came after I had made four or five works that were what became uh, that body of work, because you could say it was my personal experiment in working abstractly, playing with some ideas of symbolisms, some ideas of how to express but and participate in the uh, subjective experience that I and people were having, in part because the rhetoric of the time was art for art's sake uh, in the art world. And it usually was an attempt in the art world to kind of reduce the kind of social or expressive content in the art world. The proponents of that were people like Clement Greenberg, who I didn't know because, after all, I was on the West Coast, uh, and much of that was in the East. But in any case, the rhetoric was everywhere. And I felt that, uh, and, I, you know, I knew by an understanding of history, people had made art for every kind of reason under the sun that they wanted. And in every culture in the world, they made very significant works of art. So if I wanted to put the experiences of my life, my community, the people that I came from, and the world that I lived in in general, I could tackle anything. The Probably the most dynamic encounter of uh, social reality was racial segregation and that sort of thing, as it was in the United States in my lifetime. And so I knew that, or I felt there should be some way that that expression could be in the work. At the same time, it could be progressive, experimental, and creative, because there were plenty of significant jazz musicians doing that. So why couldn't it happen in art in the way a visual artist might do it? And I paid a great deal of attention to what the musicians were doing. Now they're very different fields, the world of sound and creativity and the world of visual constructs and creativity are very differently, very different. But there had to be a way because there were things already done in literature and other things. So. That sort of was my key. I knew if I titled them collectively something serious like the Lynch Fragments, they couldn't be stuck in simply a formalist dialogue. I might have been relatively young, but I had that kind of understanding. For my work, it, 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 it proved to be so as far as I'm concerned. So there are painters who were making abstract paintings loaded with socio-political weight, Norman Lewis, for example. But, but I wouldn't have known Norman Lewis, and his work didn't have that much weight, and he was younger. I didn't know of Norman until uh, way after I'd had one-man shows. You see, he was alive. He was in the East Coast, and communications were not like what you and I are having right now, you know. I just didn't know. I knew of Jacob Lawrence, but uh, not Norman Lewis. I met Norman Lewis, and he was a dear friend. But he couldn't have been an example of, truthfully, of anything because I wasn't aware of him. So the idea or your interest in using abstraction to address sociopolitical issues came entirely out of jazz, or were there kind of visual no, points of reference of for that as too? <laughs> okay, that I saw that that also happened in jazz or, or other things, that's true. I didn't have to get it from somewhere else because uh, I was having the real experiences. I was living in the real world. You know, I lived in Houston, Texas. I lived in Dayton, Ohio. I lived in Los Angeles. So by the time I'm 23 years old, I've had a, a, a significant set of experiences that allowed me to compare the qualities of life in the United States. And uh, by then, I was a well-educated young um, uh, artist trying to find my own way. Other people are not so much the, the key to my work as 
I mean, they were keys to my being confident that people were doing able and admirable things, but not in the sense that I needed to follow their paths. I've always loved looking at at the Lynch Fragment works. I've never held one. Um, if it isn't too weird a question, and so they hang on walls, what what do they weigh? And is there an import between kind of their weight and the way they hang on a wall, the way, you know, they aren't on the ground, they aren't on a plinth? I've never weighed one. <laughs> Are they heavy? Is that too abstract a question? <laughs> no, no. I've lifted all of them and many, and some are much heavier than others and all of that. But in advance, it's not predictable and it's not a concern. They're usually, even the heaviest of them, are not heavier than a large painting, though people think they are because they know they're made of steel. You know, and they don't usually, you know, they don't take up a lot of area. So they are, the weight is concentrated, but a good heavy three inch nail in a good strong wall will take care of the hanging of any of them. The reason I decided to hang the reliefs on the wall was sort of playing with the metaphor of hanging, which is the stereotypical general uh, idea of a lynching. But the reality is most lynchings are not hangings, actually. But it it proved to be uh, what I'd call the right place to put them at my eye level so they were confrontational to my vision or to a person's visual encounter, you know, direct personal. You, you know how they say if you, if you can really trust somebody, if you can look them in the eye and they talk directly to you, it's sort of that kind of thing. The, yeah, the larger public work, well, you stand back, uh, it's like a speech in an auditorium, you know, it's a to, the fragments are meant to be confrontational or personal, visually. I think that hanging on the wall is absolutely much more confrontational than something passively sitting on, on a podium or a plinth, and I've always loved that about them. In, in 1964, so, so quite early on, as the first work in this exhibition is from 63, you hung a work called Chano from a ceiling, and that was in an exhibition at the Santa Barbara Museum of Art. How did you uh, get and why did you get from hanging things on the wall to hanging things from above? They didn't go from one to the other. They both, in, in terms of idea and concept, developed at the same time. There's a paper that probably is lost many years ago that as I was switching from painting to sculpture that I sort of wrote out for myself the difference between painting and sculpture and sculpture, of course, had to do with actual space. And so I, I figured out, even before I'd made fragments or any of them, that sculpture could be come from the floor, could be on a base, could, uh, could be on the wall, could be on a ceiling, could be anywhere in the environment, if you will. And when I said environment, at that point, I meant, you know, a museum or gallery kind of environment. So something that roughly had uh, four walls and uh, a ceiling and a floor. So a work could come uh, or, or could develop or be in or relate to any of those parts of the space. And then as I started to develop the work, well, at various times, there were different applications of those things. And I, I'm, I know I've just about done all of them. In this exhibition, the only one that I didn't do is the um, one I did at the Studio Museum in Harlem, which was two 100-foot lengths of chain, which were of different thicknesses, but which were laid around the floor of the room of the space. There, there is a piece in this uh, exhibition uh, which ha is yellow and has two machetes attached to a fragment of a um, wrought iron fence, but it has about a, a, an eight-foot piece of chain that goes from one end of the sculpture to the other, and it's it's loose, so it can be in any kind of figuration on the ground or on, on the floor. In other words, it's loose and linear, it fits that in somewhere in that set of ideas. There have been two periods of Lynch fragment pieces. 
you know, kind of a, the beginning of your career and then you stopped making them for a while when you moved to New York and then you, you picked them back up. I wonder if you see particular differences in the works from the 60s and say the works from the last 10 or 15 years that, that jump out at you. One of the things that happened is they got broadened and enlarged. The earlier pieces tended to focus on symmetry, uh, you know, symmetrical form presentation for the most part. There were, there were uh, a variance on that. The first, the uh, Lynch fragment, Some Bright Morning, is symmetrical ejection off to uh, one side. But generally, they were more compact and more symmetrical. Uh, later on, they became more, in terms of uh, experimental reliefs, larger, double the, the size often. The summers of 1988 and 89, I worked in Zimbabwe, and I was working with uh, artists there who were stone carvers, and I was doing my work and sort of introducing the idea of uh, contemporary ideas in, in metal. But in doing, and, and part of it was that I was doing my own work, and I realized the work they were still fragments in concept, but they were larger. By the time the two years was up, and I brought back about 16 works, and I looked at them at home, I realized that the difference was I had been working outdoors with them, and I think somehow that affected the size of them. The expanded form expression uh, within the work. I can't be absolutely sure of that, but that's what I think. And then once I, the habits were like that, that was a part of my, how would you say, working uh, repertoire or ideas, that just became more part of everything. And it also implied that I could do much larger works that weren't lynch fragments, didn't have to be limited to the wall. And that kicked back to the ideas that were in the um, suspended pieces like Cheno, you know, and others. There was another one called Call Me By My Rightful Name and various suspended pieces like Cheno. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.